Open your Bible tonight, please, to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Tonight we will be celebrating the table of the Lord together. We try to do that once a month. And as I mentioned this morning, I want to begin a small two-part series on the table of the Lord beginning tonight. Now I'd like you to picture, if you would, uh, a couple that um, are getting married. Maybe if you're here tonight and uh, you're married or married couple, think back to your wedding. Um, maybe it was held indoors or outdoors. Maybe it was held in a church or perhaps in a, a public hall or someplace. And quite likely you had a ceremony and uh, a nice one. You tried to make it as nice as you could. Normally during the ceremony there are vows that the bride and groom make to each other, and if, they, if they're believers, they make them before God. And uh, it's usually a, a very sweet and precious time. Um, and then, of course, they often have a reception of some sort afterwards and different things like that. A year later, they have their first, their first uh, anniversary. And they'll remember back very fondly. Maybe they'll take out the photo album and they'll look at the pictures of when they got married. And maybe they even have their vows written out. And maybe they say their vows again. That's real sweet, isn't it? And so the next year, they do it again. Only the second year, they start to remember maybe a few more of the jokes that... Uncle Zeke told after the wedding, and they chuckle and laugh about that. The following year, on their anniversary, they remember again, they have a picture put out on the table. They uh, talk about their, their marriage, uh, and they, they talk more about the party afterward than the vows and the scriptures and the special music and so on. And the emphasis begins to change. And after a number of years of doing this, uh, a couple who at one point rejoiced in the, the solemnity and the sacredness of their marriage vows before God, now when they have an anniversary, all that gets talked about are the gifts and the jokes and um, how um, Aunt Matilda danced with a lampshade on her head and you know, all sort of things like that. And that's what gets remembered on their anniversary. Well, if you can transpose those, those guidelines, those words, onto the church at Corinth, basically you've got chapter, chapter 11 here. The, um, the church at Corinth was uh, started by the Apostle Paul, but... Um, after his departure, it started to go wonky. And it went wonky in many ways. They started making a lot of mistakes as a church. And churches are not immune from making mistakes. In fact, churches make mistakes quite often. Uh, churches have problems. In fact, uh, problems are actually part of life. You have to face problems. 
problems allow us to turn to the Lord and depend on Him, and we get to grow in faith and love and grace. And so uh, a good church ought to have problems. Not severe problems, maybe, but problems. But in a nutshell, we have the attitude of the church at Corinth at the communion table. They made a mess of it, folks. And what was supposed to picture the precious broken body and precious shed blood of the Savior. You see, that was de-emphasized. And what was emphasized was the eating and the drinking and the party-like atmosphere that was happening there in the church at the table of the Lord. And so um, God moved on the heart of the Apostle Paul to write a letter to this mixed-up church. And he loved these people dearly, but they were mixed up with doctrines, certain doctrines and certain practices. And Paul, of course, was used by the Holy Spirit to write a letter to straighten out the church. So we're going to be looking at the communion service and some of the rules by which God lays down for us whereby the service is to be observed. And so we'll do just that. So let's uh, pause now and have a word of prayer and let's ask the Lord to bless us with keen understanding tonight. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. And our Heavenly Father, we rejoice to be part of your family, born again through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, what a life is ours. We would never want to go back to the world, never want to go back to being unsaved. Lord, we, we have a heart of compassion and love for all of our lost loved ones and friends, that they would come to Christ and come quickly before it's too late. Our Father, thank you for allowing us such a precious day today in your house. And this evening, as we, we come to finish off the day, we have the privilege of, of parking our feet beneath your table. And Lord, help us to do so with reverence and respect. Please make the communion service uh, real to us and understandable by us. Lord, have the Holy Spirit please work in our hearts now. Bless as we study the Bible. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. All right. Well, uh, take a look at chapter uh, number 11 and verse 1. And Paul begins the, the chapter by saying, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. And this verse 1, this picks up the, the thought of uh, chapter 10, the chapter before it, verses 32 and 33. I want you just to see that. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God, even as I please all men. This is unsaved men he's talking about. In all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Very interesting. And on the heels of that he says, Be ye followers of me. So you can see how it ties in, even as I am, as I also am of Christ. And so verse 1 picks up the thought of chapter 10, verses 32-33. It carries it into the communion service, which we are going to look at from verse 17 to verse 34. And we can see the similarity between these. If you look once again at chapter 10, verse 33, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. And look at chapter 11, verse 33. Wherefore, brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. 
And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. And there's a similar heart, a similar spirit or thought or vein here between the end of chapter 10 and the end of chapter 11. And so I, I want to suggest to you that there's a, con, a, a continuation of this, this thought of not causing offense. Not causing offense, which is exactly what the church was doing. They were guilty of offending in many areas. And in the table of the Lord they were guilty. Now in verse 2, chapter 11, he, he starts now getting into this subject. He says, Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances. Notice there's an S. That means it's plural. There are two ordinances the Bible speaks of. One is baptism and the other is the Lord's Supper. Some churches add a third ordinance, that of foot washing. And uh, this is not done by um, people who don't know the Lord. This is done by saved people. You say, where did they get it from? They get it from the Gospels. When the Lord Jesus, on the night in which He was betrayed, He took a basin of water and girded Himself with a towel and He washed the feet of the disciples. By the way, the Catholic Church believes in this as well. And the Pope also washes the feet of certain ones every year. Um, however, uh, the Lord never uh, gave that as an ordinance, but as an example. And nowhere in the whole rest of the New Testament do we find the, this foot washing. But we do find the ordinance of baptism and the ordinance of communion or the Lord's Supper. We find those two. That's why we believe in two ordinances. Not three, not one, but two. <clears throat> By the way, the word ordinance simply means an order that's sent down to us by the boss. That's what an ordinance is. An order sent down to us by the boss. Okay? So now you know what that is. Now we get to verse 3, and he begins with a preposition. But. <laughs> there it is again. Boy, this morning we pointed that out when we talked about faith. Slow and, what was the second one? What is it? Sudden, right. Slow and sudden faith. And uh, we said as we were getting into sudden faith that there's a but. God is not about to give sudden faith to people who forsake slow faith. So anyhow, that's uh, something to keep in mind. But here, now, we have that word but. Again, the word but is an interesting word in English. And literally it means on the outside. On the outside. So we're talking about something and there's something on the outside we've got to deal with. But. And so he's talking, verse 2, about the ordinances. But, he says, I would have you to know. Now, he's uh, giving us something on the outside uh, and what he's giving us is from verse 3 to 16. It's on the outside of his main teaching on uh, communion. You follow that? Yes or no? How many of you need to go over it once more? All right, a couple of little hands went up there. No problem. In chapter 11, Paul is dealing with the, the ordinance of communion, the Lord's table. It had been badly mangled by the church at Corinth. And so, to preface things, 
He starts off in chapter 10, verses 32-33, you know, with not giving offense. And that comes into play again at the end of chapter 11. To wait upon one another. Don't offend people. And so, those are like bookends. You can see the context in which he's dealing. It's not, this ordinance is not to be done in, in a manner of offense. We're not to offend God or offend one another. And he starts and he says, okay, you're following the ordinances, that's good, but he's about to give us an illustration on the outside of his main argument on uh, communion. So from verse 3 to verse 16, he deals with this outside principle, this outside argument. And he's going to use it to make a comparison. So, um, he's setting us up for a comparison is what he's doing. He's going to make an example. Now, verses 3 to 16 largely deal with women wearing head coverings. Maybe you've read these verses. Maybe you've wondered about them. There are churches, in fact, there are denominations who teach and preach this. And if a woman comes into their congregation without a head covering... She's very politely told to go put one on, go home and get one, or they may have one on the side that, that she could wear or something like that, but she's not going to be part of the service. She's not going in the auditorium without a head covering on. Um, there are, are groups that even take it further than that. And so it's been a bit of a, a thorny issue uh, for many churches and many Christians down through the years. What is Paul talking about here? Now, verses 3 to 16 were never meant to be argued about. You remember the little illustration of the girl that took her boyfriend's credit card? No? Yes? $5,000, wow! Hey, I didn't tell you the rest of the story. When he found out that there was $5,000 on his account, he made the appropriate phone calls and they put a freeze on everything. This was fraudulent. And finally it got back to the restaurant who had already made the financial transaction and given the money to the waitress. The sad thing is that the waitress had just come through a very difficult emotional time in her life. The family pet that was near and dear to her heart, they had to take it, the, the animal into the veterinarian, veterinary and, and have it put down. And she was just heartbroken. And so this money came as a tremendous encouragement to her. Well, that's as far as the story went. I don't know what happened after that. Uh, maybe it's up to the courts to decide or conscience to decide. Don't, I don't know if the girl gave it back or if it's gone to court. I don't know. But what a mess. What a horrible mess caused by some foolish young lady who took something that didn't belong to her and tried to use it as a weapon to hurt her boyfriend. She didn't realize that by doing this, it was like a hand grenade and several people got hurt. Now she's got a criminal record. It's a felony what she's done. Well, these verses 3 to 16 were never meant to be argued about. They were never meant to be used as a hammer to clobber someone over the head. And I hope I can show you that tonight. Now, let's go to verse 16. The end of the argument, the outside argument. In verse 16... Paul clearly says, but if any man seemed to be contentious, and we got a lot of contentious men in the world today, 
and uh, some of them use this head covering thing uh, for contention and not for, uh, for Christ-likeness or love. He says very clearly, we have no such custom, neither in the churches of God. He tells us right there, he comes right out and he says it, this is not something that's customary in the churches of God. Folks, this was something customary in the city of Corinth the city of Corinth, not in the churches. I want you to know right up front that um, there is no other passage in the Bible that uh, hints at this or teaches this. Normally in Scripture where you have a doctrine, you have it mentioned and illustrated in other places in the Bible. You don't have that with this. You say, well, is it wrong? Is it sinful for a woman to wear a head covering? No, it's not sinful at all. It's not wrong at all at all. And if a woman wants to wear a head covering, great, let her. Not a problem. But don't clobber her because she's not wearing a head covering. This is very important. Verses 3 to 16, Paul gives us an example that he uses as a comparison. The idea is that we're not to go astray outside the rules. That's why he's using this, because it's something that the, the church in Corinth was intimately familiar with. They understood what Paul was saying in the city of Corinth. This was not something that was practiced all around the, the then-known world. This was something unique to the city of Corinth. Boy, Corinth really had some weird stuff. They had uh, some horrible uh, religions, and one of them was uh, called the Temple of Aphrodite. And Aphrodite was the, uh, the, the god of, um, of uh, fertility. And so this thing was no small little whistle-stop. This was a monster big religion in the city of Corinth. They had a lot of priests and they had 1,000 priestesses. And a man would go in and rent a priestess for an hour. A horrible, horrible religion. But the idea was you did this in order to get... Uh, good crops in the field in order for Aphrodite to bless you with lots of healthy children. That was the guise under which it was done. But really, honestly, folks, the bottom line is the bottom line. They were just perverted and dirty. And that's why they did it. And that's why they came up with religions like that. We've got churches that have gone really off the deep end into rock and roll and punk music and things like that. And they say, well, we have to to attract the unsaved. We have to be like them in order to win them. You show me that in the life of Jesus. You show me that in the life of Paul or in the lives of any of the godly men and women through the Old Testament or New Testament. They did not lower themselves to act like the perversion and the filth and the dirt of the world. They didn't get dirty and down and dirty with the world in order to reach the world. They didn't change God's standards into worldly standards and the devil's standards in order to reach unsaved people. That's the philosophy. But the bottom line is, they get involved with that stuff because they like that stuff. That is the bottom line why churches go gung-ho into rock and roll music. Because that's what they want. That's the bottom line. And they use theology as a, a thin veil of whitewash, if you will, to make themselves look uh, proper. This sort of thing was happening at Corinth, that horrible temple of Aphrodite. And they had many other pagan religions there. But one thing that seemed very um, 
uh, typical and common and cultural to the city of Corinth was the, the wearing of headgear. I've done a lot of research and reading on it, and different men and commentaries and scholars on this subject, and many of them suggest that uh, the women back then, um, if, they, if they did not wear a head covering, it meant that they were available. They were loose. They were available. They could be picked up. Uh, and so the respectable women would wear head covering. This essentially is what I've seen in a number of commentaries. You can look that up yourself on your own time. But uh, the city had certain cultural standards or certain cultural beliefs. This was one of them, the headgear. Now, you will not find any command of God in the Old Testament for women to wear headgear. You'll find a, a couple of instances of women who wanted to wear some headgear, head covering, no problem. But God never, anywhere, at any time, commanded the women to put on head coverings. The only place in the whole Bible where churches and denominations pin all their hopes is right here, in this chapter here. And Paul is using it as an, as an illustration. Folks, what Paul is doing is he's giving them a paddling. He's saying, you naughty church, you. And he's using this cultural business of the head covering to help administer the, the discipline to the church, to wake up church. He's using it so that they will learn not to go astray outside the rules. And so, very important that we uh, point this out here. Um, verse 17. Now, in this I declare unto you, I praise you not that ye come together, not for the better, but for the worse. So now he starts getting into the ordinance of communion. He has used the head covering to show them that when they go outside the rules, there's trouble. Because they're in Corinth, apparently, uh, as I understand it, if the women walked around without head covering on, it meant that they may work for the temple of Aphrodite. They might be available. Pick them up for a few bucks. And so the women would, uh, they would separate themselves from, from the wrong kind of women by putting on head coverings. And the church at Corinth knew this. And so Paul was saying, now, when you break the rules, when you go outside the rules, you know, when your women take their head covering off, it causes problems. And they all would have agreed, yeah, yeah, boy, that would cause some problems, that's for sure. Imagine the impression it would give if all of the women of our church suddenly started wearing mini skirts and fishnet stockings and those high spike little heels. What kind of impression would we give to the city of Surrey if all the women started dressing like that? Wow, boy, that would give the wrong impression. It sure would. We would be going outside the rules of decency and we would be causing problems. And so he's using verses 3 to 16 as an outside illustration to show them you don't go outside the rule. Now he gets into his, his explanation on communion and how they had gone outside the rules and they were reaping the, you know, the chastisement of God because of it. So he starts in verse 17 and shows them they didn't do it right. And in my humble opinion, I believe there's a lot of churches that are still not doing communion Right. 
You say, well, is there a right way to do it? I believe there is. And I believe that God lays down at least five rules that govern the communion table. And I want to look at two or three of them tonight with our time remaining. Rule number one is ordinances are to be done when the local church comes together. Ordinances are to be done when the church gathers together. Look at verse 18. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, he says, when ye come together in the church, there is no example in the Bible anywhere of communion being done outside the local church. It was given to the local church. It's not given to outside groups. There's many uh, Christian groups that do all kinds of different things. Some specialize in trying to feed children. Some specialize in trying to reach young college and career on the campuses and so on. And there are Christian groups set up for those purposes. They are not allowed to have communion services. The communion service is given to the local church. If you get a few Christians together in your home on a Friday night, you are not allowed to say, hey guys, let's have communion together. You are not allowed to do that. You are breaking the first rule because the church has not gathered together. Now if the church gathers together in your home, then you might have a case there because the church has gathered together. You say, well, what if the church can't fit in my home? Yeah, that could be a problem, I guess. You know, churches come in different sizes, you know that. And there are some churches that are hundreds and hundreds of people, some thousands of people. There are some churches that are just a dozen people. Small, little churches. They're all still churches, just like families. There are some families where there's mom, dad, and junior. And then there's some families where there's mom, dad, and 12 youngsters. They're still both families, aren't they? Just one is bigger than the other. But the idea is when the family gets together. It's given to the local church. This is very important here. Now, um, if you look at verse 22, I want you to see that, and just so that no one makes a mistake, the church refers to people. He says in verse 22, What have ye not houses to eat, in, to, to eat and drink in, or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. He's talking about people. The church refers to people. It doesn't refer, per se, to the building with a steeple and stained glass and a pipe organ. Those things are nice. But that's not the church. The church is the people. It's like the house you live in. The home is where the family is. Not necessarily where the bricks and mortar are all assembled together. That's just the house. But the family inside the house, there's your home right there. It's where mom and dad and junior and sis, they get together. There's the family right there. Likewise, same with the church. So rule number one is very important. Communion may only be done in the context of the local church when the church comes together. Rule number two is you must have unity within the church. Now, unity is something that we are commanded to keep. And we can do it. The reason why churches get into spats and quarrels is because of sin and pride. That's why they get all bent out of shape. and You know, they get all upset over the color of the carpet and the texture of the wallpaper and the 
the tone of the lighting and, and this and that and who put that picture up there and, and hey, no one's allowed to move that table without my permission and all kinds of craziness that gets into churches. And these are the things that cause upset hearts and angers to you know, come alive and before you know it, you've got no unity in the church. The people come together, but they don't love one another. They come together, right, listen, you sit on that side, I'm sitting on this side. If you sit on this side, I'll go sit on that side. And this breaks the unity. The church is supposed to be a unified body. Um, I can't emphasize that enough. So important. The church at Corinth broke that rule. They were having problems in the unity department. Look at verses 18 again. Verses 18-19. He says, For uh, first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. And I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, uh, that they which are approved may be mani made manifest among you. And so, for sure, there was divisions. Now, divisions cause the destruction of unity. That's how it works. It destroys unity. Divisions are caused by pride and by sin. Paul uses the word heresy here. The word heresy um, comes from a, an old French word. It means obstin obstinate, wicked error. I mean, real bad. It means bad, wicked error is what it is. And that comes from a, an, a, a Latin word which comes from a Greek word which means to choose sides. The idea of heresy is, hey, you, who are you going to believe? Me or that guy? You better choose sides. And all of a sudden you're called upon to make a decision. Well, who am I going to believe? Am I going to go on this side or am I going to go on that side? That's heresy. Heretics love to cause divisions in a local church. If you know of anyone who's trying to cause divisions in this local church, I need to know. I'm the under-shepherd. And I stand before God for the health of the church. If you know of someone in the church who's trying to bite and devour others in the church, I need to know so that I can help do something about it. I have to protect the flock. God will hold me accountable. So it's not tattling. Don't worry. We're talking about the health and welfare of the body of Christ here. You know, if your body had a, a problem, supposing that uh, uh, one of your toes got infected, okay? So one of your toes started to get red and throbbing and hurting. Well, the idea of the nervous system is to tell the brain. So now the brain knows. Now if it's smart enough, it'll do something about it. Maybe it will uh, take, take, take it to the doctor. Maybe it'll put it in a nice hot bath or something. But uh, the brain is supposed to know these things. That's why we have a nervous system, a little um, telephone uh, uh, system from the, the little toe up to the brain to say, hey, we've got a problem down here. All right, let's look into it. And off comes the, so the shoe and the sock and let's take a look, see what's happening here. So don't you worry. If you know of a, a, a menace, a problem, let me know about it. Now listen, if someone's having a struggle or something, uh, some little you know, thing that's not worth two cents, don't, don't bother with it. Just pray, give it to the Lord. But if you see someone devouring someone else in a kind of a mental, emotional way, if you see a wolf, if you suspect a wolf in sheep's clothing, you've got to let me know. Uh, maybe I already know about it, but you should do your part and let me know. Um, and so the idea here be, behind heresy, literally in the Bible, means to choose theological error. 
you've got a choice to make. Are you going to believe this or are you going to believe that? This is one of the problems, folks, with a lot of Christian radio. Because not everything that glitters is gold. You can have one speaker on the Christian radio who seems to really nail the truth good. And then the next program, and you're still listening, the next guy comes up and he introduces some error, some heresy, some error into your thinking. Uh, it's not always wise just to leave Christian radio on all day long. I have a station that I, I listen to that has no preaching, no commercials. It is 100% godly Christian music 24-7. That's the Christian radio I like to listen to. Sometimes someone will ask me, Hey, did you hear Dr. So-and-so on the Christian radio? Uh, he was talking about this and that. And I said, no, I didn't hear it. And the reason I didn't hear it is because I'm not in the habit of listening to a lot of Christian radio. Uh, I'll turn it on once in a while. It has some nice music. I'll listen to that. There's only maybe one or two speakers that I might stop and listen to. But all of the rest of them I don't listen to. You know, the, the way the devil works is he, he gives you gold, he gives you gold, and he gives you fool's gold. And you've got to be able to, be on, to, to determine. You've got to be on your toes. And I, sad to say, a lot of Christians swallow the error right along with the truth. That happens. Be careful what you listen to on the Christian radio. But in the local church, and specifically in the church at Corinth, they had heresy going on. And they were guilty of that. If you uh, turn back to chapter 1, you'll see sort of what I'm talking about here. Chapter 1, let's look at verse 11. 1 Corinthians 1 and 11. Paul writes, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? The church at Corinth had their favorite preachers. Watch out for anyone who comes up to you and say, Hey, who's your favorite radio preacher? Be careful of that kind of thing. Because that is the pathway that led to Corinth. They had a divided church. Oh, I tell you, Peter beats Paul any day of the week. Oh, you're full of prunes. Paul is so much better than Peter. And then some third guy comes and says, you're both, you're both of the devil. The best preacher is Apollos. I've heard him many times on, on uh, the radio. And that is one way of causing divisions. But that's the way it happened there in Corinth. That they started having divisions in the church and the unity was broken. The unity within the local church is one of those cardinal things. Every one of us has got some preferences for something. Some of us like hot, spicy food. Some of us are more intelligent. <laughs> well, anyhow, some of us are crazy enough to, uh, to like cod liver oil. And so you get the idea that we all have little quirks. Let's put those things aside. And let's concentrate on the verities of the faith and our Savior. 
we keep our eyes on Jesus, now that's okay, you know. All right, now let me ask you married people. How many here are married? Raise your hand. Be honest. Be, don't be shy. Okay, good. Put your hands down. Now, how many learn things about their husband or wife only after you got married? Put up your hand. Some hands went sky high, yeah. And sometimes it's comical. Sometimes it's not so comical, is it? Sometimes it really causes trouble in a marriage when you find out that, you know, your, your husband grinds his teeth while he sleeps. Whoa! And, and he says, no, I don't. Oh, yes, you do. And he says to her, well, you snore when you sleep. Oh, I do not. Yes, you do. You see where this thing is going. Well, let's put aside these things because these things are small. These things are little. You know, the person you married was the person that you loved and admired and adored. And they come with little, you know, wrinkles and bugs. Everyone does. And so if we can smooth out the wrinkles, let's do. But if we can't, that's okay because we didn't marry a wrinkle. We married the person inside. When we come together as a church, unity is so important. And the devil will use anything he can to try and break our unity, and get us upset, and get us you know, on the outs with one another. And that's what the, the church at Corinth was experiencing. And you can't have the Lord's Supper if there's no unity in the church. So rule number one is it's only for the local church. Communion is only when the church comes together. Rule number two is there must be unity in the church. So far, so good? Rule number three, and then we'll stop there, is the Lord's Supper is only for saved people. There's only two kinds of people in this world. Saved and unsaved. Within the the group of saved people, you have everything from soup to nuts, all kinds of skin color and language and everything you can think of. In the unsaved group, you have just the same. All these differences and variations and so on and so forth, it's incredible the differences. But they still divide into two groups. At the end of the day, when life is over, you're either saved and on your way to heaven or you're lost and you're on your way to hell. Isn't that right? One of the two groups. And the table of the Lord is only for saved people. Saved people. Now that eliminates most of the world's population right away. Because most of the world's population is lost and on its way to hell. And our job is to try and help show them the way to life. And show them the gospel and give them an opportunity to receive Christ. But this is the third rule. And um, Paul is about to point out that the church of Corinth was this crazy mix of saved and unsaved people. Look at verse 20. So he says here, When ye come together therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's mocking them. He's sort of making a, a mockery. They called it the Lord's Supper. <laughs> He's saying, you think it's the Lord's Supper. It's not the Lord's Supper. It's your Supper. But it's not the Lord's Supper. So he's mocking them here. Verse 21, For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper. And one is hungry, and another is drunken. Boy, that doesn't sound so good, does it? And um, 
Verse 22, what? Have ye not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? And so they called it the Lord's Supper, but Paul sure didn't. He said it wasn't at all. And unsaved people have no communion with Christ. The idea of communion, the whole essence of the word means common, something in common. You know, my wife and I have something in common. You know what it is? We're married. We're married to each other. We're joined at the hip. It's not just that we have a piece of paper that says we're married or we carry around little rings on our fingers that say we're married. We're married in heart and soul and spirit and we're one flesh. We have a lot in common. What does an unsaved man or an unsaved woman have in common with the Savior? Nothing. Nothing. Do you remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7? When he finished his Sermon on the Mount, he says, Many in that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Unsaved people, although they may be nice, they may smell nice, they may look nice, they may talk and walk nice, they are not saved, they have nothing in common with Christ. And as I'm going to show you, they have no worth in the eyes of Almighty God. They are unworthy. This is very important. You know something? Two children, two little children, maybe in our nursery, say, a little boy, a little girl, two little children in our nursery could go up to each other and, and, and kiss each other and then turn and say, we're married. But I ask you, are they really married? Yes or no? No, they're not. Oh, yes, we are. No, you're not. Oh, but we are. No, you're not. What makes you think you're married? We kissed. That doesn't make you married. Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. You're dealing with childish minds. And some people think because they go to church, they're Christians. Some people think that because they've even had the Lord's Supper, it makes them Christians. Some people think that because they read the Bible and pray, they, they must be Christians. Some people think that because they're healthy and they have a good cash flow, they must be right with God. Listen, it's nice to have health and a good cash flow. It's good to go to church. But these things do not a Christian make. Right? Unsaved people have nothing in common with Christ. And the idea of the table is common with Christ. What do we have that's common with Christ? Well, we'll see in a minute. Um, there are people that might wonder um, where Paul got this teaching on, from communion. And he tells you in verse 23. He tells you where he got this teaching from. For I have received of Peter. Is that what it says? For I have received of Luke. For I got, I got all this from Matthew, where did Jesus get it from? I'm sorry, where did Peter get it from? I told you the answer there. He got it from Jesus. He got it directly from Jesus. And you can look that up later in Galatians chapter 1, how Paul talked about how he went out into the Arabian desert. 
And it was there, we believe, that he met with Jesus. Well, in verse 23, he says, For I delivered un- I have received un- of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. Watch this. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed. Now you remember that. He was in the upper room with his disciples. How many of his disciples? He started with how many? Twelve. And then he finished with how many? Eleven. Because someone left the room. Who left the room? Judas. Judas was the unsaved one. He was the one that was lost. The other eleven were saved, but Judas looked like he was saved, but he wasn't. He was lost. He went out and betrayed the Savior, is what he did. And so the same night in which he was betrayed, Judas Judas went out that night. Judas was not in the room Judas did not participate in the Lord's Supper because that's when the Lord gave the bread and the juice to the eleven. Not to the twelve, but to the eleven. There was no unsaved there in the room. Um, Now, in verse 27, Paul said, and he got this from Jesus, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That means guilty as if they've killed them. As if they were the ones who drove the nails in his hands and feet and drove the spear into his side and beat him with a cat of nine tails and put the, the crown of thorns on his head and mocked him and spit in his face and, yea, ripped the beard from his face. They're just as guilty. But you see it says unworthy here. Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily It's not talking about some kind of Christian humility. I'll show you what it's talking about. Keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians 11. I'd like you to go back to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. And I'll show you exactly what the unworthy is referring to. Matthew 22. Here in Matthew 22, you have the a parable that Jesus gave in verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. And when the king heard thereof, he was wroth and sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Now watch verse 8. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not... What's that word? Worthy. They were not worthy. We're talking unsaved people. Unsaved people. They're not saved. They have no great love for Christ. They've never repented of their sins. Many don't even believe they're sinners. Well, God wouldn't throw me into hell. I'm a nice person. Oh, I'm not perfect, but I'm a nice person. You want to know how many nice people are in hell? Billions. You go into a prison and go from cell to cell and say, what are you doing in here? They'll say, oh... A travesty of justice. I've been falsely accused. I'm innocent. I shouldn't be in jail. 
And you go to the next cell. What are you in here for? Oh, they all lied about me. They told lies. I'm innocent. I shouldn't be in here. You go to the next cell and the next cell after that. And they're all going to tell you they're innocent. Thieves will tell you they're innocent, right? Hey, you stole. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. I never took it. The unworthy are the unsaved. There's nothing worthy in them to go take to heaven. And so it's very important as rule number three. In chapter 15, if you just look over at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 34, Paul comes right out and he says it. 1 Corinthians 15, 34, he says, Awake to righteousness and sin not. Now watch this. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. There were unsaved people in that church and they didn't even know how to get saved. You know, we often have unsaved people in our church, but we do everything we can in our power to make sure they know how to be saved. Their need to be saved and how to be saved. We do everything in our power so that we don't go to heaven with blood on our hands, right? But there were unsaved in the church participating in the table of the Lord, and that was the problem. It's okay to have unsaved in the church, but warn them that they should not participate in the table of the Lord. You say, why is that? Well, look at verse 28. Um, no, sorry. Let's go back a, a bit. Um, verse 29. I mean forward a bit. He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. The word damnation is a very strong word. It means harm, loss, penalty, damage. It's used 11 times in the Bible, and it's always a reference to hell. In the context, it's always in reference to hell. And so we could well put that in there. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh hell to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So we're told in verse 28, but let a man examine himself. That means to see if he's in the faith. We get that from 2 Corinthians in chapter 13. Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Weigh it out. See if there's evidence that you're saved. Unsaved who partake in the Lord's table will receive greater punishment in hell. And believe me, there are degrees of punishment in hell. And so rule number three, is the Lord's Supper is only for saved church people. There's a couple other rules, and next month we'll deal with those. But you know what would be a good idea right now is for us to bow our heads and ask the Lord, is there anything in my heart that's displeasing to you, Lord? Have I broken the unity? Maybe with my husband, with my wife, with my mother, my father, my brother, my sister my son, my daughter. With another Christian, have I broken the unity? Have I opened my mouth and hurt people? Search my heart tonight, O oh Lord.